Good morning, church. This is our first experience with any type of hurricane. We are not looking forward to it, but um, God is good, right? God is faithful, so um, we trust that. Uh, In Christ alone, our hope is found. Thank you for that song this morning, Julie. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start off by asking you to use your imagination. Okay, use your imagination a little bit. Imagine you received a letter, the old-fashioned way, from someone you love a lot. This person knows you really well, and, uh, and they love you a lot too. It's a dear brother or sister in Christ, and maybe you haven't heard from them in a while. You trust them, and you're glad to hear from them, especially on spiritual matters. And maybe they're even someone who has looked over your spiritual well-being, like a mentor or someone who's discipled you. And the letter you receive isn't just a little note. It's several pages, front and back. And as you read the first several pages, you notice that this trusted loved one, this mentor and and beloved discipler, keeps saying things like, uh, real Christians do what Jesus wants them to do. Or uh, those who love Jesus, love the church, over and over. Would you start to think that this mentor might think you're not doing a very good job? Or that you're not a Christian? Like maybe they're concerned about you and your spiritual well-being. They haven't come out and said anything like, hey, I've heard you've been sinning a lot, you need to cut it out, or you need to repent of this but their letter's kind of starting to give off that vibe. How would you feel? What would you desire most next in the letter? Probably two things. You'd probably want to hear first that uh, your beloved friend and mentor really does believe that you're a Christian, right? And then some clarity about what they're getting at what their point is. So far in the book of 1 John, we've read all about what Christians are supposed to look like as opposed to the claims of the secessionists, the non-Christians who have left the fellowship. And we've been told that real Christians follow God's commandments, abide in him, and walk in the light. And maybe the original audience, after a couple chapters of this, would start to think that John had very little confidence in their faith. Praise the Lord, John anticipated this. And today our text is encouraging to those who love Jesus. It's encouraging to those who have found the enduring worth of knowing God. And our text today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Let's stand together and read it. This is the word of the Lord. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word today, we ask that you would mold and shape our hearts and our lives around it, that this would be the measure of us. Lord, we we pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. So we submit our time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. In our text today, we have a section dedicated to encouragement, and then a clear command. John has been spending his time, if you'll recall, he's been spending his time expounding on what he has called the message they heard from the beginning. Do you remember it? Do you remember the message they had heard from the beginning? Chapter 1, verse 5. God is... Anybody? Light. God is... And in him there is no darkness at all. That is the message they have heard from the beginning. Everything that we've covered since then has been a development of the implications of that truth. And the rest of the letter is based upon the fact that God is light. And now we come to John's command to his readers. There's not been any commands yet, but we'll talk about that in a second. But before we see the command, first we have an encouraging word. This first section, verses 12 through 14, reads a little bit differently than the rest of the letter, right? It looks a little different. It seems poetic, even song-like. And it seems to even come out of nowhere, like it's this big break in the action. But this was pretty common in ancient letters, especially from teachers. Remember, many of these people couldn't read. So it was common for a teacher to put something in a letter like this that would be easy to memorize. So the purpose of 12 through 14 is to memorize it, which tells us something about the section, right? The stuff contained in 12 through 14 is important. It's important enough for John to write it like this for his people to memorize it, for, for it to stick with them, right? There, there are three different groups he's addressing in this section, children, fathers, and young men. So let's take a second to talk about these groups and how we're supposed to understand them. Maybe the most common approach to interpreting this section is to think of each of these groups as representing stages of the Christian life. Okay? Children would be new Christians, young men would be those who are growing in Christ, and fathers would be those who have been Christians for a long time. But the problem with this approach is that nowhere else in Scripture do these names or stages refer to stages of the Christian walk. They always refer to actual life stages. And on top of this, John's common name for all of the believers he's writing to is children or little children. You can read through the rest of the letter and maybe not look that far and see some examples of that. Verse 18, for example, just down here in this chapter. He calls them children all the time, and he's addressing everyone. So the best understanding of this section, then, is to understand children, 
to be referring to everyone, including us. Young men to be referring to Christians who are younger in age, and fathers referring to those who are older in age. And John starts off by addressing the children, or everyone. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I want you to notice that John gives us more reasons that he's writing to the people. He's already given us four, or this is the fourth time, why he's writing this letter. The first way that John wants to encourage his people and encourage us this morning is by reminding us that our sins are forgiven. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, we have a a powerful verse that I'm going to bring up pretty much every week. We read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And do you remember in chapter 2, verse 1, when we learned that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, even when we do sin. And so these two truths are amazing. They're foundational. But John wants his people to know right now that their sins are forgiven. Sin is a big deal. We've seen that too. It separates us from God. But sin has been dealt with in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's an incredibly encouraging thing to be reminded that the thing that once separated you from God has been taken care of, right? My little children, your sins have been forgiven. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, be encouraged this morning. Your sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord. For some of us today, that's really good news. This week has been long, maybe full of sin. It's good to be reminded that your sins are forgiven. But John goes on and gives us a reason why, why your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. And that's a statement that we see all over in the scriptures, and so we can easily brush over it. He doesn't say, your sins are forgiven because you're so great, which of course isn't true. And neither does he say, your sins are forgiven because he loves you, which of course is true. He says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Other translations might say, on account of his name. Why were we saved? That's a basic question. Not because we were particularly lovable. In fact, we were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God, Ephesians chapter 2. But God saved us because of his name. God ultimately saved us because of himself, his glory. It's only because of the free, sovereign choice of God that you this morning are saved, that your sins are forgiven. All throughout the scriptures, we read about God's acting because of himself and because of his name. And if you're looking for a really good study through the scriptures, I would encourage you to study the name of God, how God says he acts because of his name, how people plea to God, not because of what they've done, but because of his name, so on and so forth. It's a fascinating read. I'll share one verse that perfectly represents this idea. Isaiah 48.11. In Isaiah 48.11, God is speaking to Israel about their salvation. And he says this. For my own sake. 
For my own sake, he says it twice, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Wow. That's the basis of salvation. God's glory, God's name. God ultimately saved us because of himself, his glory, and his name. And that should give us great assurance today. That should encourage you. God's name will never pass away. His name will always be the greatest and the highest. He will always rule and have control. He will never lose. He will never leave. He will never forsake you. Not because you are so wonderful and lovely and because you deserve it, but because his name is so great. Why should he save you? The ultimate reason is because he wants to. Praise the Lord. Our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Be encouraged. Only because of Jesus, we are saved by God's grace alone. And I, I am personally deeply encouraged by that this morning. Are you? To the fathers, John says he is writing, because you know him who is from the beginning. Remember, fathers refers to those who are older in the faith. You go ahead and categorize yourself as you'd like this morning. And in order to encourage them, he tells them that he knows that they know Jesus. Him who is from the beginning definitely refers to Jesus. Whenever John brings that up, he who is from the beginning, whenever that occurs, he's talking about Jesus. It would be incredibly encouraging to hear from someone like John the Apostle that he sees the way that you've lived your life and he can tell that you know Jesus, right? That would be encouraging. Back in verse 4, we read, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. So John's encouragement here to the fathers is doing double duty. He's not just saying he knows that they know Jesus. He's also saying that he knows they follow his commands, right? He's commending them for knowing him. And he doesn't just say this once. He repeats this exact encouragement in verse 14 as well. And he gives this same encouragement to the children. His second encouragement to the children in verse 14 is this, that you know the Father. Now, this is my fourth Sunday here at Lake Morton Community Church. I've had the opportunity to get acquainted with many of you, and I'm excited to get to know you more, but my relationship with you all has just started. I will say, however, that I'm impressed. I'm impressed by the members of this church, both advanced in years and in their prime of life. Everyone that I've had the pleasure to talk to expresses a deep love for Jesus and a deep desire to know the Lord. So, although I haven't known you long, with John, I want to encourage you. You know him. And that's clear to me. The last group he addresses is the young men. He says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And the second time he addresses the young men, he adds two more points of encouragement. He says, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. By young men, John is not 
talking about teenagers, but really anyone in the prime of life. And young people really need this kind of encouragement, don't they? It's so easy to become discouraged when you are young and your walk with the Lord isn't really long. It feels like your battle against sin isn't always victorious. But John's a good pastor. He reminds them that they've already overcome the evil one. They've conquered the devil. And how have they done that? The second line, he addresses them, he says, they are strong, and the word of God abides in them. Those are really one and the same thing. They are strong because the word of God abides in them. And of course, in John's writing, the word of God refers both to the scriptures and to Christ himself. Their strength comes from their abiding relationship with Jesus. It's Jesus who has conquered their sin. It's Jesus who has overcome the evil one. And we, when we abide in him, we reap that benefit. So you might not always feel strong, young people. But if you are in the Lord today, the truth is you have overcome the evil one because Jesus overcame him. Can I get an amen? Praise the Lord. So to those here today with a relationship with Jesus, I hope you feel encouraged. It's easy to despair. It's easy to despair in the Christian walk. And it's easy to look at your life and to think you aren't doing a good enough job. But if you are in Christ, these things are true of you. Praise the Lord. And find some rest in that knowledge today. Be encouraged. God is light. And when we have a living relationship with him, that light shines in our hearts, gradually and surely. We become more like Christ. We begin to know him. And we have overcome the evil one. So John starts this section with some encouragement from the fact that God is light. But he doesn't end the letter there like you might expect. That's a good way to wrap up a letter. But he's got more to say, more to say to his audience. So the second thing John does after expounding on the thought that God is light is give a clear command, a clear command. Let's reread verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, believe it or not, this is the first command given in the book of 1 John, right here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. John doesn't give a lot of commands in his writings. In fact, out of all of the gospel authors, John records the least direct commands of Jesus. And that does a few things for his writing. I don't know about you, but from our study so far in the book, the meaning of what he's been saying hasn't been lost on me, especially when he says things, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, right? That's not a command, but... The communication is clear. Don't sin. 
keep his commandments. But when John does give a command like this, it sticks out in bold, bright colors, right? Since there's so few of them, the commands we receive from John are really important. So again, if you're an underliner, this is a place to underline. Verse 15, do not love the world. It's important that we take some time for a second to try to figure out what John means by the world, right? Do not love the world is the command. So what does he mean? It's one of, one of his favorite words, and he uses it differently from time to time. So this is what he means. He's referring to a whole way of life resulting from the fall, which is under the domain of the evil one. A whole way of life resulting from the fall that is under the domain of the evil one. In other places, this word world means all people or all Christian people. It can even mean creation. And neither of those things are meant here. We know that because we're told to care for creation. That would go against the command to do not love the world. We're told that creation is good. And earlier in the letter, we're told to love people, right? That was the main point of last week, one of the main points. So John doesn't mean either of those uses here. And let me be clear, he's not just talking about culture or society in general, because you can have a redeemed, godly Christian culture and godly society. Okay, so it's not that either. It's really important sometimes when we read the word that we do our best to read it well, to understand what some of these words really actually mean in their different contexts. And it's really important in a command like, do not love the world, that we understand what world means. Or else we may say, okay, well, if world means culture, I'm going to completely escape from the culture and isolate myself like a hermit, right? Or if it's creation, okay, well, I'm not going to love the created world and I'm going to destroy it as best as I can, right? But that's not what he's saying. Ultimately, he's talking about the domain of darkness. That place in the world where Satan is completely under control. He's talking about everything that is opposed to God. The world is everything that is opposed to God. So the command becomes crystal clear. Do not love that which is opposed to God. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And that's John's way of saying you can't love God and love what is opposed to God, right? <laughs> that makes sense. If you love things that are opposed to God, then you must not love him. When we have a real relationship with God, we start to love the things that he loves and hate the things he hates. He hates sin. And it's right for us to also hate sin. John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And in verse 16, he tells us what he means by the things of the world. These are the things that make up the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. There's a lot that can be said about these three things. But I'd like to start by, by saying something really important. They are interrelated. They overlap. They have to do with one another. They are more together 
in one than they are apart. Some preachers will say that the desires of the flesh are bodily temptations, the desires of the eyes is covetousness, and the pride of life is being really happy you've got a lot of money or something like that. And there's truth there, but it's more than that. Remember, John's trying to provi- he's not trying to provide us an exhaustive list of all possible sins. He's trying to describe the sinful world and its opposition to the Father. This is descriptive. These three things are all about their power to pull our attention away from God. Let me say that again. These three things are all about their power to pull our attention away from God. These are the things that we wrongly put our time and effort into. Okay, so in that way, they are broad categories that cover many things. The desires of the flesh, for instance, can be bodily temptations. It includes that, like sexual immorality, alcoholism, drug addiction, so on and so forth. But really, the desires of the flesh are anything that we think we need to fulfill our lives. That's a huge, broad category. That can be literal, physical cravings and temptations like I just mentioned, food, drugs, sex, whatever. But it can also be anything that replaces Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells a crowd whom he had just miraculously fed, okay, loaves and fishes, that they shouldn't be looking for more bread from him like that. This is the beginning of John chapter 6. And he even says this in John 6, 54. This is wild. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. One of the most mind-boggling things Jesus said. Well, it turns out that even his disciples were offended. And Jesus tells them in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus' whole point is that bread will not satisfy eternally. Flesh means body. Only Jesus, who is the bread of life, can satisfy eternally. The desires of the flesh that are anything that make us think, if only I had that, I'd be satisfied. More food, more drink, more sex, that car, that job, that spouse. These are the desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes are often said to be the the things that we see and that we want. But obviously, I disagree. Those are the desires of the flesh. Anything we think will satisfy us apart from Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Those are the desires of the flesh. But like I said, these things are interconnected. So the desires of the eyes are similar but slightly distinct. A common proverb in our culture, in our world, if I could use John's word, is you only live once, right? You've got to live in the moment, be in the here and now, that kind of thing. That's the desires of the eyes. It's an over-concentration on the things that are before our eyes. It's busyness. It's overcommitment. It's lack of Sabbath. 
It's having no concern for eternal things. The desires of the eyes means an overfocus on the things that are only before our eyes, only the things the eyes can see in the moment. And man is this easy to fall into. It is easy to live like this. We are busy people. We can barely take a break. And the enemy wants to use that in order to distract you from your walk with Jesus. We can become way over-concerned about our immediate lives today and fail to realize that God is in control. That is the desires of the eyes. But then there's the pride of life. Maybe your translation says something like pride in possessions. And that's because it's a different word that John uses here than the word he would typically use to describe Jesus, whom he calls eternal life. Right? It's a different Greek word. This word, used for life here, really means something like our living situation, our living situation, our living environment, something like that. And this really helps us round out our understanding of what it means to love the world. The enemy wants us to desire things that we think we need and distract us in that way, anything that is contrary to Jesus, the desires of the flesh. He wants us to concentrate on the things only right before us, right? The desires of the eyes. But he also wants us to look at our whole life and all the things that we have and be satisfied in them. He wants us to think that we're doing pretty good. We have what we need. We don't need much else except maybe a new boat. The pride of life is thinking we are secure and don't need God. And so these three things together sum up what John means by the world. So when taken as a whole, these three things really sum up the reigning value system in our world and in contemporary life. Our world tells us to strive for worthless momentary, temporary things that we think will bring us security. When in reality, the only thing that will bring us eternal joy and security is knowing God. So don't love the world or the things in the world. Because as John says, the world is passing away along with its desires. Darkness, sin, temptation, and the devil all have an end date. Can I get an amen? Why waste your time with stuff that's not going to last? Don't love the world. Instead, John says that we should do the will of God. And in this context, the will of God is obvious. It is the direct opposite of what the world wants you to do. We have to desire Christ over the thing our flesh wants. We have to be eternally minded and not just short-sighted in our day-to-day life. And we have to find security in our relationship with him and not our livelihood. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's that word again. Abide. Hope you're underlining. The two loves, love of the world and love for God, are opposed to one another. You can't love God and love the world. The world is passing away. 
But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will abide forever in him. You will remain in him, eternally connected with Jesus Christ. Not so if you love the world. The world is passing away. Don't pass away with it. Maybe you need to make an adjustment this morning. Maybe you find yourself loving the world a bit too much. Maybe it's stuff or distractions, the next best thing, the desires of the flesh. Maybe it's a crazy, busy schedule that keeps you from Jesus, the desires of the eyes. Maybe it's a false sense of security because of your wealth or your job or whatever. Whatever it is, these things pass away. So this morning, I'd call you, even if you feel a little bit convicted by this, to confess your sin, chapter 1, verse 9. And he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, John starts this message off with a lot of encouragement. That's where I want to end. When we confess our sins, he will forgive them. So be encouraged today, church. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Thank you so much for forgiving us of our sins. We do not deserve it. There is nothing that we've done to earn that type of forgiveness, that type of mercy. You have just looked upon us, and for your own name's sake, you have saved us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, so often we get distracted by things that we want, things that we desire, things we think will fill our lives up. Maybe that is filling up our time, being so busy that we can't spend a moment with you. Forgive us. Maybe we have a bunch of cool things. We've gotten a really good job with a bunch of cool degrees and we're putting our faith in that. And we like to think we're putting it in you, but Lord, if those things fell away, so would our relationship with you. Forgive us. We pray that we would put our faith ultimately in you. Not look at temporary things as the source of security. God, we trust you. We know that you are ultimately in control, and we love you. We give ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.